You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so we were looking through our honeypot logs uh, specifically for um, results for a certain vulnerability in Yarn Hadoop. And uh, Larry was talking about how Go binaries are so much bigger than all the other ones that we're seeing. And uh, so I started filtering by megabytes, and then we found some pretty interesting samples. That's Alan West. The research we're discussing today comes from Akamai and is titled Uncovering Hinatabot, a deep dive into a Go-based threat. Joining us are Larry Cashdollar, Chad Seaman, and Alan West. Well, let's go through it together here. I mean, what exactly is going on under the hood here? What are we talking about? Chad, you want to take us through this? We haven't heard from you yet. Uh, so, yeah, Hanadabot comes in um, through a couple of known CVEs and, and one Hadoop misconfiguration. A lot of people uh, stick Hadoop out there, Hadoop yarn, and they leave it exposed to the Internet, probably due to an oversight. Uh, and... Through this mechanism, they they can achieve code execution. So it's spreading through those uh, three primary mechanisms that we found also through SSH brute forcing. From there, the the malware, once it gets a a foothold, uh, it it phones home to a a C2. A big part of this research was actually, since the C2 was down at the time of discovery, was reverse engineering the command and control protocol so we could actually cause the the binary to stage attacks against a controlled victim and and see what that traffic looked like. Um, It it has two primary attacks. There's a UDP attack and an HTTP attack at this point. Um, There's been some historical attacks that we've seen in previous samples that have been removed, but we're not really sure. Uh, And and its primary goal is to push either volumetric UDP um, or layer 7 HTTP and HTTPS attacks. Do you have any sense of this, this, the history behind this or where it may have come from or, or be, been influenced by? Yeah, so uh, in looking back through the logs, the IP that we found distributing uh, these samples originally, which also turned out to be the command and control IP, we looked back and sort of used that as a pivot and saw that it had for a while been distributing a bunch of different uh, Mirai variants for a while. It was about a month at the beginning of the year. And then... Uh, 
about halfway through the month, we started seeing them distributing uh, the Hanadabot. And when we looked up the historical DNS um, resolve of the IP as well, we also saw that it was Mirai lovers or high, high Mirai lovers for a little bit there. Uh, so we definitely could see some influence uh, from Mirai. And obviously now they're trying to make their own thing. And, and who are they targeting here? Who are, who are they trying to infect? Who, who's the primary victim here? So there's targeting in two senses. Um, one sense, we have no visibility as of yet. Uh, because the C2 was down at the time of the discovery, we haven't been able to see them launch attacks and figure out what their primary motive is uh, as far as victimization goes. From the exploit stuff, uh, it looks like they're, they're targeting low-hanging fruit, to be honest. Um, there's nothing novel or new about the infection vectors that we saw them using. The Huawei uh, exploit is old and well-known. We've seen it used to spread Mirai and Gafget and other samples that, that are competing in this space. The SSH brute forcing was uh, a primary tenant of uh, Mirai spreading back in the day. It was Telnet and SSH brute forcing campaigns that really got a foothold for that one before they moved into some of these uh, other RCE variants uh, or exploits. So I think at this stage, it's it's just they're victimizing low-hanging fruit in general. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them continue down that path because it's easy. Uh, the problem is, is that it's also a, a very competitive landscape. So it's hard to really get a foothold there. Uh, in the article, we allude to, we hope that they stay on this path. Um, and without trying to give them any ideas or credit, we're, we, we would not like to see them be more successful than they are, put it that way. Uh, so if they continue for low-hanging fruit where there's a lot of competition, that's good news for everyone. Larry, I, I'm curious, they're using the Go language here. What, what, what is the appeal of that? It, it strikes me that we're seeing more and more attention there. I think because Go is portable and it's fast, um, I think a lot of uh, malware authors are sort of gravitating towards it. Um, you know, you have the ability to, to cross-compile it uh, to other architectures. And we saw Hanadabot had a lot of compiled binaries for many different architectures. Ones that I, ones that I was surprised, I think there was some binaries for Solaris. Um, I think we saw some Solaris SonOS binaries in there. So I, I thought that was pretty wild. But, and I, you know, um, it's also static, statically compiled. So there's no, you know, it won't need any libraries or anything linked to it because the, the binary is a ball of everything it needs. So you can just stick it on a machine and it should run. Um, so I think that's the other appeal. And, you know, I think Go is an up and coming language. And I think a lot of developers are, are also gravitating towards it. So uh, the malware authors will follow in turn. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, there's that that all those things lead to it having a larger file size? You know, typically with an IoT binary that's been compiled for like MIPS or ARM, in, you know, and it's written in C, they're usually, um, they're dynamically linked. They're between, I'd say, 40 and 200 kilobytes. A Golang malware binary is usually between like four and like 30 megabytes. And that's because it's so self-contained? No, I think it's also in part because of how the Golang binaries work. As far as it being 
able to, to be deployed in multiple places, the Go binary typically generates a, a five meg or more binary because I believe it ships the interpreter inside of the Golang binary itself, which is in part why it's so much easier for cross-compilation to function because they really need to, to compile to underpinnings for OS, but then the core code that the author would be writing is is operating through that that Golang level um, where it's more abstracted against the various OSs and platforms that they're compiling for. Just for my own understanding here, and please pardon pardon my ignorance, but is this kind similar to like on Mac OS, you hear about like fat binaries, you know, where that something's been compiled for example, for both Intel and and uh, you know the 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 M series chips. Is is, is that sort of thing where it has everything it needs to regardless of where it's deployed no they still they still compile into platform specific packs but i think each one of those platform specific packs ships a go interpreter uh or some kind of bytecode uh that that will take the the golang uh and and operate it on that platform if it makes sense like each one of them is large because each one of them is shipping a, an architecture-specific interpreter or environment for the, for Go to execute in. Part of what you all cover here is the process you all went through to map out the C2 communications. Can you take us through that process? As far as the, the reversing of the protocol was concerned, um, we kind of started with not really knowing what the binary or how to speak with it. Because of the sample that we had and it not being stripped, we did have some hints about what the function names were. So we we knew that at some level there's an HTTP flood, HTTP flood capability. At some level there's a UDP flood capability. And the problem became, okay, so in the code, how do we get to where those functions are going to be executed? So it became a process of basically patching the binary so the C2 that was down, we overwrote the location uh, of that C2 to an IP that we can control. From there, we spun up a socket and started communicating into that binary when it would phone home to us, thinking that we were the C2. At that stage, it's really just kind of trying to navigate and see where you land in the binary at what stage, uh, and then figuring out you know, at this point in code, we're either going to go left or right. You know, we're, we're going to, to venture into different parts of the code based on what input we're providing it. Uh, and, and then it's just kind of mapping that out. So at this point, it's expecting, you know, uh, a hex 30 or a hex 31, uh, which translates to the ASCII character for a zero or a one. Um, and if we go zero, it goes this way. If we go one, it goes this way. And if it's neither, it goes this way. So we'll want to end up on this side and, and we can kind of map out that once we get down that fork of the code, ultimately we get to the UDP or the HTTP flood uh, and then it starts mapping out, okay, so how many args is, are, are we expecting to be passed into that function? What, what arg in position one, where is it going to end up in the final payload? Is it going to become the IP address that we're attacking? Is it going to become a packet length directive? Is it going to trigger some other fork of code that we're not familiar with yet. So it, it's really just a, a pretty feedback loopish uh, experience. I'll put it that way. 
everybody. I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. And what did that reveal as you went down that pathway? How were things uncovered for you? Did it get easier as you went along? Um, it was a little more frustrating than I think any of us would like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, because when you see the final product, it's such a simple and fairly straightforward protocol that it becomes frustrating that it was such a pain to kind of map it out. Yeah, the initial stage was uh, just trying to figure out how to even talk to the thing. Um, what what was the prefix that we needed to pass in order to get to where we would even start processing the command uh, arguments? Um, before that, there was a handshake, and it expected uh, certain things to be responded to from itself and from the C2 to send back a certain response before it would even go into the, the attacking uh, functions and start checking for the the next stage of payloads. So I won't say it was easy. Um, it wasn't insanely difficult, but it was just a lot of back and forth and tinkering to figure out like, okay, we got here and now what, what, what happens here? And sometimes it was, why did this crash? Um, Cause that was one of the things is as we started to add more parameters you know, you start out and you're you're thinking like, okay, we'll put we'll put a numbered argument or something we can identify in memory in each one of these different offsets as we go into that binary to try and map out where it's going to land in memory. Is it going to be past? These were x64, so what register is it going to end up in? Going back into GoLang's own uh, function documentation and looking at GoLang internals to figure out what is this function. Um, going to be called and, and what parameters are, are expected into this library function. So it was just a lot of back and forth with that before we finally got it done. Uh, I think all in all, I don't remember how many days. It took at least a, a couple to a few days to get everything mapped out before we, we felt confident that we had all the fields mapped and, and could control everything we wanted to control. I'm curious, you know, Alan, can you give us some insights? What is that collaborative process like for for you and your colleagues there, is, are, you, are you tossing things back and forth? Are you asking each other questions? Or are you documenting things along the way? What, what is the process that you all use? Sure. Yeah, so originally, um, one of us finds a sample, and we start tearing it apart by ourselves, and we find something that's particularly interesting about it. Maybe I'll message Larry, and I'll be like, hey, is this normal to you? Like... <laughs> Have you seen anything like this? And then, you know, spin up a document, start documenting as you go so you don't have to remember everything you did a week ago <laughs> in detail, just basically overtaking notes. And then um, as you get stuck, phone a friend, and then everybody working on their own side will 
um, you're kind of in a meeting talking together and if somebody has a breakthrough, you tell everybody else and you just keep going that way until, uh, until you're fried for the day. Yeah. I'll, I'll get stuck and I'll be like, all right, I'm going to see what Chad thinks. Then Chad will be like, what are you guys looking at? And he's like, oh, you should try this. And then he'll fire up a, a, a terminal and he'll start poking at it. And then we'll sort of watch what he's doing is, and then we'll sort of throw ideas around at each other. So it's, it's, definitely a, a, a major collaboration when we get something like this and, and uh, one of us gets stuck or the other one gets stuck and we sort of just pass the ball around. Well, let's dig into the two attack types here. As you mentioned, there's HTTP flood uh, and then also there's a UDP flood. Can, can you describe to us exactly what it's doing? Sure. So uh, the two, like you said, there's, there's two primary attack functions. There's a UDP flood and HTTP flood. Um, the UDP flood is pretty straightforward. Uh, in both cases, the attack functions spin up a, a pool of 512 worker threads. Um, this is super easy to do in Golang. It's a pretty common technique for you know high performance, parallelized data processing, any any kind of thing that that's going to be quicker if you do it in parallel. Obviously, <clears throat> so it's no surprise to see that used here. Uh, it's cheap, it's fast, it's easy, and I don't know why you wouldn't do it. It's going to to give you more throughput and and more just overall processing speed for for what you're attempting here. From there, it, it's just going to establish a UDP socket, and then it it appears to pass that socket reference into the various workers, and the workers run through a loop. They they have a duration. They're given a duration as part of the attack directive. Uh, and they basically check a timer. And for, for each iteration of their loop, they're checking that timer. And if the, the timer is older than the time that they expect to be done with the attack, then they exit. Otherwise, they're going to just continue to shove a, a big, fat, null-padded UDP packet through that socket. The other attack, the HTTP attack, same kind of deal. We get 512 workers, uh, but it's actually using Golang's native HTTP uh, client. So this is a very well-built uh, client. I'll put it that way. It handles a lot of edge cases. Uh, it, it handles redirection, um, DNS uh, resolving, a lot of stuff that, that we see less advanced bots kind of struggle with or not do properly. It has no problem. It can handle HTTP, HTTPS. They, I believe it was hard-coded to HTTP 1.1 or 1.0. It did not do HTTP 2 by default, supports uh, a few different headers. Some of them are randomized, some of them aren't. Uh, with the HTTPS support, um, it will get through a, a TLS or SSL handshake, no problem. So it's it's a pretty thorough and functional HTTP attack platform for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, how does this compare to other uh, botnet tools that you all have analyzed before. Do these folks seem to uh, be up to the task? Do they know what they're doing? Yes and no. I mean, there's there's difficulties in operating with raw sockets in Golang in general. From from a standpoint of like, I don't, I don't suspect we'll see a send flood come out of this. I'll put it that way. It's possible, but I doubt it just because of using truly raw sockets in Golang is is a little bit more difficult. 
I would say that the two attacks that we see in there, the UDP flood and how it's tooled and the HTTP flood and how it's tooled are both pretty straightforward attacks to get wired up. And that's that's in part because Go is a great language, in my opinion. Um, it's pretty easy to get a UDP socket up and running and start sending data over it and receiving data from it. Uh, and same for the HTTP library. You know, they didn't have to go down and, and start, you know, figuring out okay, we've got our socket. Now we need to build our HTTP request. And now from that, we, we've got to do this. We've got to redirect. We need to follow it. You know, the, the, the DNS resolution, all of that is, is handled because the, the underlying Golang libraries are solid. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's incredibly advanced. Um, a lot of the code, to a lot of the underlying code that would empower this, uh, you could probably find on... GitHub or Stack Exchange with a handful of Googles, and it's just a process of slapping it together, really. What are your recommendations, then, for organizations to, to best protect themselves against this? I guess let's start with uh, infection. How do, you, how do you prevent this from taking hold on your network? Yeah, um, most of all, the standard security procedures that you would uh, recommend in general, like updating your applications and uh, using strong passwords, um, as we saw, you know, brute forcing SSH credentials, they were not complex credentials. The ones that we saw, they were like admin, admin kind of stuff. Um, and then on top of that, these are very old CVEs that are being targeted or old misconfigurations that have been known for a long time. So yeah, just keeping up to date with, uh, the common vulnerabilities and updating your applications. Larry, I'm I'm curious uh, with the C2 being down. I mean, is, is that a, a typical thing in the the playbook here that it would, you know, not not be active until it's needed, or or what does that generally indicate? It, it could indicate that the the malware was up at one point, and then the C2 was either found by you know someone. It was like it was on a, a network, and somebody saw malicious traffic, and they shut the C2 down. Or it's possible that the actors. Uh, shut down the C2 and moved it somewhere else or, or they're relocating their operations. Um, we've seen it before where we get a malware sample and the C2 is offline. I'm actually analyzing uh, a piece of malware right now where the C2 is also down. Um, and the malware that I'm looking at is only a few days old. So I'm, I'm assuming that the, the either starts you know, started up the, the malware and then tested it and then shut the C2 down and managed to, to get a sample caught by us is, is my guess, but um, it's, it's, it happens. Yeah, hard to know for sure. To ride on that as well, um, in the past we've seen other authors engaged in this kind of activity um, and typically, and it's the same for, for this piece of malware, uh, if the C2 is not up, the, the malware doesn't die. It just waits, um, and it's going to phone home every so many seconds uh, if it can't establish a, a successful connection. So what we've seen in the past is the authors will bring the C2 up. They'll let it sit for five or ten minutes and make sure all the bots have phoned home. Once they have a pool of functional attackers, they'll issue their attack command, and then they'll turn it back down. You know, it, it's, it's kind of a, a decent technique, I'll say, because... If you're a researcher and you're looking at it and you think the C2 is down, you're less prone to look into that. And also, if, if you have uh, adversarial concerns from 
researchers or law enforcement or whatever appearing to to have gone away is a technique that you could debate the merits of it, I'll guess. Our thanks to Larry Cashdollar, Chad Seaman, and Alan West from Akamai for joining us. The research is titled Uncovering Hinatabot, a deep dive into a Go-based threat. We'll have a link in the show notes. Cyberwire Research Saturday podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.